Bruce Schneier is a security researcher and author of several books, most recently Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Capture Your Data and Control Your World. Bruce, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thanks for having me. I'd like to start by talking about your newest book, Data and Goliath. It's about the proliferation of transaction data and how this data is stored and saved and bought and sold. In this title, Data and Goliath, who is Goliath? Well, Goliath is the, the data collectors. It's governments and corporations. It's everybody who sits between us and the Internet, us and our data. It's our phone companies. It's companies like Google. It's the NSA or whatever country you happen to live in. It's everybody who wants our data. And what are the motives of these different Goliaths? Now, there are two basic motives. Well, you know, actually, so there's one. The motive is to get power. I mean, data is power. Uh, power for different purposes. If you're a corporation, you want data because it is marketing power. It is advertising power. It is persuasive power. It's power to convince others to buy your stuff, to behave in the way you want. Right? If you are a government, it's more coercive power. You know, either power to go after criminals, go after political dissidents, go after those whom you don't want to, uh, to operate freely in society, right? depending, on, depending on what country you are, and it's good or bad. And then there's stuff around the edges, right? politics, certainly a lot of data collection there, and there it's also persuasive power, it's marketing, but what we're selling is candidates and not soft drinks. But it's the same basic idea. And the applications for these data, uh, this, this type of data, are increasing. Facebook recently received a patent to help lenders discriminate against borrowers based on social connections and other social data. What are the consequences of this type of system? Well, you know, that's not new. You know, we've, we've been hearing about lenders looking at your social connections to see if you're worthy of a loan uh, even before this Facebook patent. And in a sense, it can be a good thing. People in countries without any credit need some way to establish that they are responsible members of society. And one of the ways you can do that is by showing your social network. So there are certainly positives here. But in general, this notion that you are judged by your data can have some very dangerous consequences because it's easy for the data to get it wrong. That being judged by your data can be arbitrary can be confusing. There's, there's often little ways to correct the record. So there are positives and negatives here. Speaking of the judgment in the face of data, I'd like to talk some about the Ashley Madison case. This is where a hacker or a group of hackers recently released all of the user data for Ashley Madison, which is a site where married individuals can find each other and commit adultery. And this story is getting increasingly perverse. Yesterday, I read that most of the female users are actually robots. Do you have any thoughts on this story and the implications of it? it this is a big deal. It's, it's, and it's not the lasciviousness of it. I mean, it, it, it's a new story because it's an adultery site, because the people on there are doing something that is socially considered bad, right? that they are there misbehaving. But what this is, it really, is a bunch of people sort of being caught in the blast radius of a bigger hack. Hackers went after Ashley Madison for, it seems like, personal reasons against the company. And they, in the process, did a lot of damage to individuals 
who entrusted their privacy to this site. So this is not the first time we've seen this. Uh, last year, the government of North Korea uh, attacked Sony because of a movie, and they, as part of the attack, published uh, lots and lots of corporate emails. And the press wrote about the, the CEO emails, where he was making racist jokes about President Obama and complaining about his movie stars. I mean, a lot of stuff for fodder for the press. But in there, emails of thousands of regular employees doing regular things, having regular conversations with colleagues and friends and loved ones, and their privacy was violated. It's the same thing. They weren't the target. They were an inadvertent victim. All of these Ashley Madison users were inadvertent victims of this hack. And I think this is going to be an increasingly common attack that this, what I call organizational doxing, someone breaks into a corporate network, steals all the data, and publishes it, is going to become more and more common, and then more of us users, employees, regular people will be hurt because of it. And so the running hypothesis, like you said, is I think it's a disgruntled employee that was trying to get back at the company. But you could imagine a different scenario where this this hack could have been some sort of like anonymous type group that uh, believed this was su- such a terrible situation. You know, uh, males contact essentially talking to bots that are passing the Turing test uh, and convincing them that they're women. Um, under that type of circumstance, would you consider this hack more of a Robin Hood type of ethical hack? Uh, but it, it really depends. It's, it's, not, it's certainly not ethical to publish the personal data of hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And whether it is a, a hacker doing it from the outside, right, that was hacking team who did that a hacker published all the data from the cyber weapons arms manufacturer hacking team or a few years ago with uh, HB Gary Federal, whether it's a nation state doing it, which has seen to be what happened with Sony, whether it is an, an insider doing it. Uh, right now, WikiLeaks is publishing an enormous number of cables from the Saudi Arabian government, very similar to uh, Chelsea Manning and the State Department. That might have been an insider, might have been an outsider. These attacks are different people. Insiders, outsiders, governments, individuals, uh, for different purposes. Some of them are are more moral than others. I think uh, the hacking team was certainly uh, an act of of morality. Uh, Sony, much less so. Ashley Madison. I mean, it's one thing to expose the company's uh, duplicity in a variety of instances. It's another to publish the identities of millions of people who really you know, did nothing wrong and don't deserve this. So I really disagree with the tactic here. So the you think when we look back at this and, and think about it as a watershed event in security, if we do think about it that way, uh, it seems the motif that you're thinking about is that it's this idea of a blast radius where these people that were not necessarily the intentional victims of the hacking become victims. And this is increasingly going to be a problem. You know, right now we're living in a on an internet where our data is elsewhere. And this is relatively new. I mean, five, ten years ago, my email was on my computer, our, our documents were on our computer. Now, we use e- uh, internet email providers, our calendar, our address book, all of our, our photos, all of our stuff is elsewhere. So we're forced to rely on these companies for our security. Remember the Apple uh, hack of, of the photo archive from last year? 
That only happened because everyone stores their photos in the cloud. If the photos were on our computers, that wouldn't have happened in the same way. So, yeah, we are all entrusting our security to these companies that we don't truly understand, that might not have our best interests at heart. What about these bots? When humans are fooled by bots that are masquerading as romantic partners, is this a security breach? Has our romance been securely breached? I don't, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is part of the lasciviousness of the story. Uh, there are lots of bots out there. They're, they're used uh, for helping people shop. And yeah, that people can be fooled by romantic bots. I, mean, I mean, that that's someone else's story. I don't think it's... We, we, making it. it a security story, I, I think, is really strange. But this is the thing that's going to get the press. Right? This is the titillation part of the story. But I think Certainly. the real part is the data. And, and it, it could have easily been been data that's just as personal but not as lascivious. Data about which, uh, which diseases you're searching. Data about your mental health. Data about your physical health. Data about your loves. This could be a regular dating site. What is the difference between security and privacy? It's not an odd question. Uh, they're different words. They're, they're related concepts. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to you. What's the difference? Um, well, security I would think of as something that enforces your privacy. Uh, security is, is the layer that uh, protects protects your privacy, I guess. So, so that's that, that's a good answer. So, privacy is a thing you want, right? That that you want your data, your information. Privacy has a lot of different attributes, but you want privacy, and security is a way you get it. You get it through security. Other things you might want are safety. And security is a way you might get that. So security is a mechanism, and it's and privacy is an end state. Now these are very very overloaded words. I mean, any definition I give like that, you're going to find exceptions. We we I said we want to be safe. People also say I want to be secure. So security ends up being a process. It's also an end state. They're they're very overloaded words, and and I always find if someone asks like, what's the definition of X? It's almost looking for trouble because you, you're never going to find a definition that's truly satisfying because they are such core concepts and such complex concepts. A year and a half ago, you wrote an essay called It's Time to Break Up the NSA. Do you still feel the same? Yeah, I do. And, and so I'll give you the, the major problem. The NSA has two very different missions. Basically – Protecting our stuff and attacking their stuff, you know, very, very broadly. And those missions made sense to be together during the Cold War because our stuff and their stuff were different. That you could attack a Soviet radio and defend an American radio and it was the same technology. And when you did one, it didn't affect the other. Now the world is different. Everybody's stuff is the same. We're all using TCP IP and Cisco routers and Microsoft Office and Chrome browsers. We're all using the same stuff. And there isn't an attack ours, sorry, attack theirs, defend ours dichotomy in the same way. And so these two NSA missions are now hurting each other. 
that when you attack theirs, you by definition leave ours vulnerable. When you defend ours, you by definition defend theirs. And so I think this should be broken up. The NS, the core NSA, espionage is a is is a perfectly reasonable thing that needs to be done, and the NSA should focus on that. Government on government espionage. So Ooh, it, let, let me let, let me go through the rest. Uh, government on on individual surveillance is a police matter. Rightfully belongs in an FBI like organization, probably the FBI. And and cyber defense really should be pulled out of the NSA and put into a much less secret, much more focused defense organization. And and the one piece sort of missing there is the attack piece, which is now and rightfully belongs in U.S. Cyber Command by part of the military. Is, Is that who originated Stuxnet? I don't think we know exactly which organization originated. Stuxnet. It, I, I, you know, see, right now the NSA and Cyber Command are very commingled. They are separate politically, but they are both in Fort Meade, both run by uh, Admiral Rogers. So it's often hard to figure out what came from where. Stuxnet, I'm sure, was a Cyber Command operation, but when you say the word originated, I don't think we, we know it all. When you think about Stuxnet, I mean, it seems like the type of thing that would take so much complex coordination between different branches of the military and of the government, it almost necessitates there being a, a tight commingling between, uh, between the NSA and the, uh, and the Cyber Command. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. What they will say is because the technical expertise is so related that they need to be close. And that makes sense. If you think about the difference between what the government calls CNE, computer network espionage, and CNA, computer network attack, it's all the exact same steps up to the very end, which is either copy star dot star or delete star dot star. So they are exactly the same. But politically and legally, they're very different. And the reason you want to separate them is because they're very different tools from a policy perspective. And having them close, I think, muddies that. But you're right that, that technically they, they are basically the same. How did Stuxnet affect your perspective on cyber war? I don't know if it did. It, it, it certainly is an example of it, but it's not an example that is surprising in any way. Right? It, is a, it really is the first military-grade cyber weapon we saw launched. But it wasn't science fiction. It wasn't surprising. It was kind of regular. It's a good example. It's a good story to talk about. I don't think it really changed thinking that much. Well, do you think it changed thinking in the internal government military discussions? Because it's certainly certainly easier for you and I to say, "Oh, yeah, this, you know, we could we could have seen this coming." But maybe you know the people in Washington were like, "Wow, you know, no no blood was shed, uh, but we we accomplished exactly what we wanted to do." Do you think it changed the tenor? I think it did because it demonstrated the power of a cyber weapon. And you're right. It was largely successful. There was some collateral damage. There were networks around the world that were affected by Stuxnet, uh, but not a lot. You could argue that was, that was successful. 
but it really did demonstrate that a targeted cyber weapon could achieve the same goals that a uh, a missile strike or a bombing run could with less loss of life and less other damage. So I, I, in some ways, I think that was a really good demonstration, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Were there corporations involved in the creation of Stuxnet? We don't know. Uh, probably not. It does seem that the government had assistance from Siemens, which is the company that built the controllers that Stuxnet attacked. But it's unclear that Siemens knew exactly what they were assisting. Uh, I don't, we don't know about any contractors that were involved in the building of Stuxnet. So that's unknown. Uh, there probably were, simply because there's a lot of contracts inside the NSA, inside Cyber Command. A lot of non employees are doing this work. But we do not know of any corporate involvement in any detail. How far do you think we are from a world where Google and Amazon become uh, very active as military contractors? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think they are almost by definition not trying to. Becoming a military contractor is, is surprisingly difficult, and I've, I've worked with military contractors. It's kind of its own thing. You have to have the expertise to navigate the military government contracting process, and that is a unique skill set. It is If companies like Google and Facebook are doing military work, they are likely doing it through some other contracts. Like, I'm going to make this up. Raytheon has a government contract, and, and Google works for Raytheon. That really feels not likely. Uh, we know there's cooperation between government and, and those companies, probably mostly under, uh, under duress, un, under actual coercion, because the, the companies really do have a strong image in, in not cooperating with the government. You know, for example, we know that Facebook shares its photos with the FBI, we know that Google responds to lots and lots of legal wiretap requests uh, every year. But you know, I just don't see them getting into the military-industrial complex business because it's such a separate business. Let's say you have Google spin up a data center to support the Skynet of the U.S. government, though. Does, does that border on becoming a military contractor, or is it is it uh, a segregation of concerns enough? Nah, you know, it does, but again, I don't see them doing that, because it's not just as easy doing the tech. It's, it's understanding the paperwork, and the paperwork's right. the hard part. Hmm, interesting. And, and they're not government paperwork companies. So, you know, certainly they could provide assistance to the General Dynamics contract that's doing that, but I just don't see them as being government contractors. It's, it's such a different world. I mean, I agree with that, but also building a data center is such a difficult process, and the military is going to be increasingly uh, powered by these data centers. And you think Google or Amazon or whoever else is, is going to be exponentially better at doing these data centers than uh, Raytheon? Maybe. But, I don't know. Who's yeah, building the Utah data center for, for the NSA? It's not Google. It's not Facebook. Fair enough. And I'm not convinced this data, data center building expertise is so rare. And these really feel, you know, big data, the NSA has been doing big data since before big data was big data. So, yes, there's a lot of expertise in the corporate world, but there's a lot of expertise in the government, too. And, yes, right. I, I'm sure that if there was this massive contract to build a government data center, and, and there are government data centers, the big contractors would get expertise from these companies. But I don't know if, you know, I mean, how they do it is is you know feels more likely to be done within the traditional government channels. Got it. So 
the things that we do know these corporations like Google are, are doing is that there there has been, you know, obviously documents uh, released that have shown how some ways that they are expanding the government's surveillance net. Um, we started to see these these documents uh, a while ago with the with Snowden disclosure closures. Where are we today? How have things changed? How are corporations working with the government to expand the surveillance net? So, with fits and starts, you know, and it really depends on which industry. You know, we know, for example, that there's enormous cooperation between AT and T and the NSA. And this was the subject of a ProPublica New York Times story a few weeks ago. And we've seen a lot more of it in the Snowden documents. But there's enormous cooperation between telcos and the NSA in, in the UK between BT, British Telecom, and the UK's NSA, a lot of cooperation. And they've been cooperating through the Cold War. I mean, this cooperation isn't new. And, and this cooperation is, you know, let us tap your lines, let us access your facilities, let us... Uh, access things you're doing in other countries. There's a lot of that cooperation. There's less so with more of the, the modern data aggregators, the Facebooks and the Googles, who don't really come from that tradition of, of government cooperation and are fighting more, although you know, their data is used a lot by, by government, uh, either through coercion or through you know, theft or any of the other, or bribery, any of the other ways uh, government gets at, at this data. So this type of coercion, how does this manifest? Is it like uh, you know, the, the government just basically coerces them and then uh, comes into a, a Google data center or a Facebook data center and says, hey, you have to, make this, you have to plug in this wire here? Uh, is it at that level, or where, where exactly is this coercive uh, change in engineering happening? Well, I mean, it, it's going to depend, you know, and we see examples uh, of all of it. Uh, we see, you know, asking nicely, NSA going to AT&T and saying, hey, can we plug this into your data center? AT&T is saying, sure, put it in that closet over there, don't tell anybody. Uh, we see bribery, NSA going to RSA security and saying, you know, here's $10 million, we want you to make this algorithm a default. Uh, we see threats, uh, and then we see actual legal compulsion. Uh, whether it's uh, the FBI going to uh, uh, an ISP and saying, "Give us this data," to you know, more general, you know, make these changes in your systems. So it's really kind of all over the map, and and different different tools are used, and I'm sure they're targeted against different uh, different companies. Are we seeing Snowden-like actors come out of corporations that say, "Hey"? Uh, you know, we've been strong-armed into doing stuff, and here's the proof behind it. We don't like it. We aren't seeing many. It's it's. We are seeing a lot more. Nobody's big as Snowden. Snowden's a, a once in a lifetime, you know, because so so we got so much. But there are many people leaking government documents in the United States. Many is like maybe a half a dozen, a dozen. I kind of try to keep track, but very hard, who are not Snowden. Some of these could easily be, be corporate employees. We don't know. Right? Snowden was a corporate employee. But no one that big. We haven't seen a major whistleblower sort of hear all the documents. The closest we've seen is the outsider, we believe, who went into hacking team. Hacking team is a, a cyber weapons arms manufacturer. 
sells surveillance and attack weaponry to a lot of countries. You know, you, I'll give you the list and you say, God, these guys shouldn't really have this sort of stuff. They use it for human rights violations, to arrest people, for torture, and it, it, bad stuff. And that person broke into hacking team, released everything. Right? So that's similar. That seems to have been an outsider, not an insider. We, we haven't seen a major whistleblower from a U.S. defense contractor. So if you're an engineer at one of these companies that the U.S. government has interest in uh, getting the data from, how do you determine whether or not something you're doing is ethical or unethical like you know it I, I could i just imagine being an engineer in in a, in a spot like kind of like in snowden's spot and where he's like you know i'm being asked to do these things uh it doesn't feel totally legitimate do you have any tips for how to develop a philosophy that is sort of strong enough to 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 understand where the breaking point between your personal ideology and the requirements of your engineering job lie you know, I, I, you ask, it's a good question, but it's not really a, a question for me. You basically ask me, how do I get a moral compass? <laughs> I don't know, right? I mean, I mean talk, to a, talk to a philosopher, talk to a psychologist. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how to get a moral compass. It, it's something people should have. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a fan of moral compasses, but my ex, I don't have expertise in how to develop one. So you are not a philosopher? Uh, are, you, are you more of a reporter? Do you see yourself as a reporter? See myself as a technologist. Right? I mean, my background is cryptography. My background is math, computer science, into computer security. And really only lately in my career have I moved into the economics of security, the psychology of security, really now the sociology and politics of security. But, but no, I've, I've never been a I've taken philosophy classes in college, but I've never been a philosopher. It'd be fun to be one. Well, the ph- philosophical reasoning in these types of situations oftentimes does seem rooted in math, though, because a lot of times you can say, oh, well, uh, you know, syllogistically A leads to B leads to C leads to D. Obviously, you know, the D is a scenario, an economic scenario we want to avoid. Therefore, we should avoid A altogether. And A is sometimes something that, you know, seems totally unrelated, particularly in the engineering world where things are really complex. And so, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I agree it's a difficult question. Um so maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Make I sense. will defer to you. That's a, that, that. That sounded interesting and opaque all at the same time. <laughs> I will <laughs> <Right>. defer. <laughs> okay, defer. Um, but let's talk about the engineering then. What are some best practices? What are some things engineers should keep in mind when building secure systems? You know, uh, so so. It's another, there's another question I'm going to duck, not because it's a bad question, because the last thing what they should keep in mind is do not listen to advice on radio shows on the internet. That this is complicated. <laughs> this is this is hard. People get graduate degrees in this stuff, and if and then to keep in mind that a, that a little bit of advice picked up here and there is not going to be enough. I mean, keep in mind that this is hard. And, and I'm, I'm asked all the time on, on interviews, what are the five tips for this? What are the six <laughs> ways to do that? Right? You know, that? That any one of these lists is bad. Any one of these, here's how to be safe, is, is going to be incomplete. And what we're learning again and again and again is this is subtle and complicated. And if you think you've got it right, you better know why you think that. Because yeah, I mean, it's hard. It, it's funny. the The first interview I did this week was with uh, a guy who's helping to build a uh, cryptocurrency system called Ripple, and and I asked him about you know security principles. And he's 
Like, don't do too much. Don't assume that you know something when you may not know it. It's basically just like assume humility and uh, essentially the same thing you're saying. So, and, um, and those are good principles. I mean, the, the, certainly. And what we learn again and again is that that security is less about what you think of and more about what you didn't think of. Right. So, so, so this, wrote, this makes this hard. You wrote yesterday about a internet-enabled refrigerator for man-in-the-middle attacks. I had a conversation with Vint Cerf, who is a Turing Award winner, this internet pioneer, and he said he was worried about refrigerators launching a denial-of-service attack on a bank in the future. Have you thought about this type of scenario? Like, how would this attack play out? Well, not refrigerators per se, but it's it's things. And and, and this is something that uh, Cory Doctorow said. I think he put it very well. We've moved from a world of things to a world of computers that do things. So a refrigerator isn't actually a refrigerator anymore. It used to be. Now it's a computer that keeps things cold. Right? Your car is a computer with four wheels and an engine. Your, your smartphone is a computer that makes phone calls. Your thermostat is going to be a computer that keeps your your house's temperature regulated. And all of these are computers. And as computers, they have all the power of regular computers, just probably without the screen and the keyboard. And they have all the vulnerabilities of regular computers. So just as you know, a hacker can, can build a zombie network of computers to attack a bank, a hacker can build a zombie network of other things to attack a bank. And those things will include refrigerators and toasters and thermostats and all the Internet of Things things. And because they are much more limited use, much lower cost, much more poorly designed, etc., etc., they're likely to be much more vulnerable. So when, when Vince Cerf says he's worried about his refrigerators attacking a bank, what he's really saying is this proliferation of embedded low-cost Computers that people aren't paying attention to are just as vulnerable as the big computers and can be used for the same things. And are there – this may come back to the same type of philosophical thing that you'll defer, but is there a way we can defend against this type of attack or anticipate it or build processors, build IoT systems that are, are not susceptible to this type of thing? Oh, lot, lots of ways. You just don't like them because they're expensive. I mean, this is the problem. These, these devices are made to be low cost. They're made to be small and cheap. I mean, nobody wants to, to have a computer-like design process. Now, a lot of these devices have no update path. Your home router likely cannot be updated. It has vulnerabilities that cannot be fixed. The way you update your home router is you throw it away and buy a new one, which is kind of unacceptable. I mean, right now, what is this multi-million uh, car factory recall? I forget which company, because they have to update their software, and the way they have to do it is in the factory at the dealer. Hmm. Right? Tesla cars had the same vulnerability. They pushed an upgrade over the air to all their cars while people were sleeping. That's the difference, that these devices just aren't built with this kind of security lifecycle in mind. I mean, of course, we could do it, but we have to recognize that we want to do it, and we have to recognize that it's important to do it, and we're willing to pay to do it. And, and so far, we haven't shown any of that willingness. When we put these processors in refrigerators and cars and thermostats, 
are we increasing the attack surface? Are we increasing our vulnerabilities faster than we're improving our utility? You know, I, I'm sure we're improving utility even faster. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be actually doing this. We are definitely increasing our attack surface. We're increasing vulnerabilities. I mean, this this vulnerability I talked about earlier this week, where the Samsung refrigerators had a interaction with your Google account and caused a vulnerability. Right? I mean, there's an interaction between two things. But the utility of these of these computers is so great. The, whether it's a Nest thermostat or a computerized car. I mean, some of it's kind of weird. I mean, um, the refrigerators that know when are out of milk, and you know, it gets a little esoteric. But a lot of this is very valuable. I mean, I don't think we are increasing our risk faster than we're increasing our utility. But we are definitely increasing our risk. I want to come back to Data and Goliath and related topics. What role do human analysts play in the comprehension of these big data collective processes? Do we still need so it, manual human uh, analysts? Depends what you define by need. It depends on your purpose. So, I mean, the data is collected for a lot of reasons, and, and you have to look at the error rates. Right? Facebook, Google, click an enormous amount of data, and they use that to deliver personalized ads. No humans are involved in analyzing that data. And honestly, if they have a one-third error rate, so what? It's still better than showing an ad to everybody. So advertising can tolerate a very high error rate. If it is approving a loan, you know, the error rate you want is, is a lot less. A one-third error rate would be a disaster. So maybe you have a fully automated process that has exceptions that are looked at by people. Now, on the other hand, the government might use this data to launch drone strikes and figure out who to kill. For that, a false positive is actually really, really bad, and there you're going to need a human in the loop every time. So it depends a lot on who's using the data and for what purpose. There'll always be ways where the data is used fully automatically, and there'll always be ways where the data needs some kind of manual check, intervention, massaging, or something. So this show is typically about software engineering. We've been talking more about kind of the higher-level implications. Um, do you have any idea how the level of engineering savvy at a place like the NSA or, or Booz Allen compares to a place like Google? You know, it, it, I think it's interesting. There is a lot of expertise in both places. Certainly, uh, the NSA is going to have attack expertise that corporate America doesn't have because, you know, we don't need it. Uh, defensive expertise, I think, is it will be strong in both places. I'm not convinced that the NSA will have any secrets that a Google won't. But there are certainly differences. We see this in the NSA documents, that the attack tools the NSA are building are, are very sophisticated because they actually have budget and manpower at attack tools, which, you know, we don't. You know, we've seen the, the PowerPoints for these back-end data collection and processing systems. I'm curious how well implemented those systems are, because I, I can't tell you how many specs for uh, systems in, within corporations where it's like, oh, yeah, the spec looks great, and then you look at the engineering behind it, you're like, this is not up to the spec. Like, So do you think we, that... We don't know. We have no idea. Yeah. Like, we, we just don't see the details. I mean, we, the thing we know most about is X key score. We see, we see the, we've seen the structure query language. We've seen 
really saw a lot of guts on how that works. It looks very well designed. But we just don't have enough visibility into the details to know how well the things work in practice. Let's talk a bit about X-Keyscore. It's, it's such a good specific example. There was a movie recently that came out, um, the the four, Citizen Four, um, and they talk, they talk a lot about X-Keyscore in it. What is X-Keyscore? Uh, X-Keyscore is basically a database. It seems to be a database of databases, that it is a singular database plus query language plus data visualization console that will allow an NSA analyst to query individuals, keywords, to look for people with certain characteristics. It seems to be the most sophisticated query tool NSA analysts have. When Snow taught in the beginning, he would said something like, from my desk, I was able to spy on anybody, including the president. Something like that, he said. And it was wildly dismissed. He was talking about X-Keyscore. And the more we see about it, the more we see he was right. That from his desk, he was able to do all of that. And, and that was using X-Keyscore. It keeps a, a rolling buffer of data. Of course, it can't store everything. There's just too much of it. So data is stored for 30 days, 60 days, longer if it's certain kinds of data. But it allows the analyst to do very complex queries. I was looking at some of the uh, reports we've seen. It's things like, you know, tell me anybody from Syria who searches for these websites from 2 to 4 in the morning. Right? I want to know everybody who talks between the Ukraine and Moscow using PGP. Those sorts of things you can, you can query with XKeyscore. So this conflict that is kind of developing between the U.S. and ISIS, um, could you? how do you see this conflict? This, it seems like almost like a social media battle, but also you know, an information battle. Could, could you give a primer on how the U.S. is approaching the, the ISIS conflict? I certainly can't. I'd love to hear one, though. I mean, I, I, I mean this, this is certainly a, a big issue. Uh, I, I can tell you where to go to get one. I, I've been uh, listening to the talks from the Aspen Security Forum, which occurred in August, and, and some extremely high-level uh, administration officials in counterterrorism, in law enforcement, current, former, talking a lot about things, including the ISIS threat. And they are talking a lot about this. I don't have. I mean, I don't have anywhere near their expertise, but I would sort of urge listeners who are curious to go pull down the, uh, the videos of the uh, Aspen Security Forum talks and uh, panels. They're really interesting. I will definitely put those in the show notes. Um, but from what you've heard, or maybe you just don't want to talk about this at all, but do you think this is like this ISIS stuff is the type of thing where the NSA's tools actually have real, a practical use and we're going to say like, oh, wow, this is actually it's pretty good. We're glad we have these things. I mean, NSA tools have a lot of practical use. I mean, spying on foreign leaders is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I mean, espionage is important. It's an important tool of statecraft, and we shouldn't minimize it. So I, I never minimize the NSA's tools. The question is really the targets. Uh, against ISIS, uh, I mean, I don't know what the NSA is providing. NSA doesn't really talk about it, but I'm sure there's a lot of good intelligence, both strategic intelligence and tactical targeting intelligence. Who do we drone? Is going to largely be NSA determined. Right. So I'll, I'll begin to uh, close off. Have you had any big philosophical changes about your beliefs in security in the last 10 years? 
ten, let's so you know, I'm, I'm now min-maxing your number, which of course sure, is five not years. the question. About five, ten, twelve. I mean, really, my career has been a series of generalizations. And you know, again, I started out in cryptography, then computer security, network security, more general security technology. You know, I lately I've been thinking about my economics of security. Maybe fifteen years ago, started writing about the psychology of security you know, ten years ago. And my latest works are the sociology security was is 2010, uh, Liars and Outliers. And my latest book is really the political science of security and privacy. So it's really my attempts to sort of figure out what's going on, to, to generalize and understand what's happening. And, and if there's anything, that's really the changes. And what's next along that arc? What will your next book be about? You know, I never know before I write it. How, how does that writing process work? Is it just you, you sit down and, and you're, you write paragraphs and paragraphs and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm writing a book and this is a topic I'm interested it, in? It's, 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 well, I say, usually sit out to write a book, but it's never the book I set out to write. For me, writing a book is, is, is exploring a topic. So I will write with a topic in mind, but often what I get will, 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 will end up being different. Uh, I, I don't write front to back. I write what I say is bottom to top, which is I write pieces everywhere, and then I keep moving them around, trying to f- find the story, find the narrative. And it often takes me about half of the way through the book before I understand truly what the book is about. And then I just keep adding stuff all over and until I'm done. I think tech journalism, or whatever you want to call what you do, tech analysis, um, I think it's a growing and it's an important topic, and that's you know kind of why I spend a lot of time doing it. Um, I'm curious. I think you're really good at it. And I, do you have any suggestions for ways to uh, be a responsible, uh, and informative, and entertaining, and good uh, researcher of technologies and journalist of technologies? You know, I don't know. I, I don't consider myself a journalist. It sort of reads oddly when you say you're a good journalist. I think of myself as a technologist, <laughs> someone who does technology and writes about it only secondarily. I do for, I mean, so I'm a doer and, and, and secondarily a writer. I'm also a good explainer, which I think is why my writing resonates so well. You know, I, I, I don't have any good advice because I never, I didn't go down that path. I sort of just stumbled on this. It, it's what I do. So just a couple more questions. What is the most important security topic on your mind that we have not discussed? What an interesting question. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I tend to flitter about. I don't really have important topics on my mind. I mean, right now I'm trying to write about, about cameras and face recognition. That just happens to be this week. That's not an important topic. I think we hit the Internet of Things, which is important. We hit uh, public-private surveillance partnerships, which is important. Uh, we talked a bit about security and power and some of this organizational doxing and cyber conflicts. So I think we're, we're, hitting, the, we're hitting the good topics. Did you see this recent thing where it was like 250,000 iPhones that were jailbroken uh, recently uh, you know, flashed a screen to the user that said, uh, you cannot use this uh, iPhone anymore until you pay a ransom? I did not. That's interesting. So we're seeing more ransomware. I mean, it's, it's now prevalent uh, on computers. I didn't know it was coming to cell phones. But again, why not, right? They're just computers. Right. Yeah, I mean, okay, so real quick, what, do, what are your thoughts on, on walled gardens? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, you get your iPhone, you know, you've got the walled garden, you decide to tear it down to jailbreak your, 
your iPhone and then all of a sudden it's susceptible to ransomware. Is this is this proof that the walled garden approach is uh is is a is a good idea and it or or does this just mean that you know maybe oh the walled garden approach is a bad idea because it, once you tear it down it everything's out the door. You know the walled garden has pluses and minuses. It has certainly security pluses. It's it's not perfect. And like anything, if it's breached, it's breached. Uh, I don't really think it's a referendum on, on the walled garden. Okay. Sure. And final question. Why don't you write much about Bitcoin? Oh, gadzooks, because there's a lot to <laughs> learn about. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's funny. I have about a dozen papers printed in my computer bag right now on Bitcoin and how it works and some of the interesting things. And I think I have some, finally something to say about it, which really is it's 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 – fragility. That what we're learning is that Bitcoin is being broken not by the math and cryptography being broken, but by the stuff around them. People having hacked Bitcoin wallets and hacked Bitcoin exchanges and all of these things around the Bitcoin protocol that you need to make it work are the weak links. And it turns out that having a a currency without a government backing it up is 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 risky. And I think that'll probably be the first essay I'm going to write about Bitcoin. It really has been. I haven't had a lot to say. It's been a huge learning curve, and I wasn't sure I wanted to, to go down it. But I finally think I have something that no one said before, so I am thinking about writing something about Bitcoin. That's great. I, yeah, I can't wait to read that. Um, and, and I did a week of shows on it, and I think kind of what you're saying is, is true and interesting. It's like you get – you have this uh, uh, utopian decentralized platform and then uh, organically – pockets of centralization develop and then those are instantly the vulnerabilities and they make the system insecure it's it's funny so right and and in some ways you know it's it, it's a lesson that that as much as we try to get away from centralization that we need it even around the edges yeah fascinating well that's a great place to stop bruce schneier Thanks so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm a huge fan of your work, so keep it up. Oh, thank you.